Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast that explores resistance to white supremacy through the lens of Jewish and Christian scriptures. The Word is Resistance is a project of Surge Faith. My name is Alan Maxfield Steele, and I'm giving my first offering to The Word is Resistance podcast today, and I'm recording on August 29th, 2017 for the September 3rd Revised Common Lectionary Readings. The scripture selection that I'm going to look at this week is from the gospel attributed to Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28, and I'm going to read that after the first musical break. The title of this installment is, We Are All Going to Die. A little bit about me, I'm recording from a closet in my home in Haywood County, North Carolina, which is in the western part of the state. For those of you who know this part of the country, you know I'm in the Blue Ridge, and we are in a broader region of southern Appalachia. So the other thing that you might want to know is that this land, in fact, belongs to the Cherokee. So I'm a guest here in many ways, not only as a white person whose family colonized the Carolinas in the 18th century, but also as a guest of Appalachia. You see, I moved away from my home in Rowan County, North Carolina, just a couple hours east of here uh, when I was 18. And although I've not lived too far away from here in the last 17 years, I am grateful to be back in North Carolina, even though I'm just a little ways west of where I'm from. Most of my people come from the western edge of the Carolina Piedmont. Just a little bit more about me since I'm new to the podcast I'm an ordained clergy person in the tradition known as the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, or Disciples as some of us call it for short, and I am currently serving as the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee, and I'm honored to do that alongside Ashley Woodard Henderson. So, I'd like to kick us off with some drugs. And no, not those drugs, but the drugs Wendell Berry writes about in his poem, The Man Born to Farming, which I offer as a prayer to help us center ourselves a little. So if you are able, get comfortable, do your best to get comfortable, start breathing, and hear these words. The grower of trees, the gardener, the man born to farming, whose hands reach into the ground and sprout. To him, the soil is a divine drug. He enters into death yearly and comes back rejoicing. He has seen the light lie down in the dung heap and rise again in the corn. His thought passes along the row ends like a mole. What miraculous seed has he swallowed that the unending sentence of his love flows out of his mouth? like a vine clinging in the sunlight, and like water descending in the dark. I said at the beginning, this week's installment of The Word is Resistance is entitled, We Are All Going to Die. 
And I'm looking at the gospel as it's attributed to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. I'm going to read from a New Revised Standard Version text. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. A couple of things to start out this commentary. First off, readers of this text, I think, would be really wise to recall what scholars, Christian and Jewish alike, but in particular, uh, very significant Jewish scholars, what they've aptly named about Matthew in this text as well, which is, that the community or communities that would have been listening to Matthew's telling of the gospel would have understood that the elders and chief priests and scribes mentioned in this text, that they're Jewish leaders. This is an important remembrance for people, for Christian folk in particular who are using this text, that a lot of Matthew's telling became a source for anti-Jewish doctrine death, and destruction. It's important to really recall that. Yes, there are Jewish leaders, and they are the ones who are the people in Matthew's gospel that cause Jesus to suffer before his execution. But Matthew's choice to frame it this way could have had as much to do with tensions between early Jesus movement people uh, who were listening to Matthew's telling and the people who were running the establishment synagogue at the time. It could have had as much to do with that as anything else. So, in the way, one of the ways that I look at it is that it's it's more of a plot line. These are the these were the bad guys in the moment, right? Um, it's more of a plot line than a theological claim, and we should not extend the theological claim that includes anti-Semitism in, in any way. And I think that's a much more um, apt way to hold a text, particularly when we think of it in terms of its imperial context, which I'll dig into a little later with some help from a guy named uh, Warren Carter. The key message of this text is that Jesus is going to die because those in power want him to die, that he is challenging and rippling uh, with his message and his life and his ministry uh, creating ripples throughout the fabric of, you know, this society and this sort of culture that's operating. And so he's, he's pushing back. Um, so he's going to die, but he's going to be resurrected because God wants to tell everyone and wants everyone to know that God can in fact defeat death. God is those, 
those divine things, those divine things and not those human things. A related and second thing to keep in mind is where Jesus comes from and where he is going. In Matthew, the biblical scholar Warren Carter reminds us that Jesus is a rural Galilean from the margins. And he's a rural Galilean from the margins who has taken the fight to the center of power, Jerusalem. The cities in Jesus' time and place were the centers of imperial authority over the provinces. And Jerusalem was a center of Rome's reach into Jesus' homeland. Which means that the empire and the local religious elite came into confluence right there in that city. The rural ministry geek in me raises the rural-urban movement, or the rural-to-urban movement of Jesus in this story, because I think that there are really important considerations for people out there who are grappling with rural-urban dynamics in the U.S. right now, especially post-election. There have been a bunch of us who've been thinking about this stuff for a while, and you know, it's nothing new. There's been a lot of really amazing rural ministry work that's gone on in the last hundred years. It just kind of continues to cycle in and out of vogue within progressive circles because of a whole bunch of reasons we won't get into right now. But many of us who grew up in rural Southern contexts, we might start asking about the cultural influence of Southern cities on our definition of Southerness. So if we're thinking about Jerusalem as Charlotte or Atlanta or Nashville or any other kind of major city that has um, real significant economic impact and power, uh, what's the way that that helps us understand our own Southerness and our conceptions of whiteness in particular as white people? So, you know, thinking of Nashville and country music and the different kinds of cultural production that comes out of there, I had a friend who used to refer to Nashville as the cultural capital of the right. And so, again, we're not going to get into that too much, but I think that there's something really significant about Jesus moving into Jerusalem and pointing this out, like going to the center of this culturally, religiously, and imperially powerful place. I think that there is um, a lot to think about in that way for our, uh, in, in that vein for a lot of what we do now in this work, not just in the South, but in other parts of the country where uh, city-based economic power that exists in our regions, um, it's often invisibilized. It's, it's, it's invisibilized in the, in the way that it sustains empire in white supremacy in both urban and rural settings. So like the relationship between uh, the economic relationship in particular between uh, cities and, and rural spaces and sub-rural spaces and sub-urban spaces and all that. You know, what are those dynamics that are playing out? And, uh, what's what's that all about? So we're not going to get into that, um, uh, really. Uh, we're not going to get into that. We're not going to get into questions about, um, you know, the power that rural communities have, too. Um, you know, if you look at Jesus as being a rural Galilean from the margins and then, you know, mobilizing this big campaign, so to speak, against Jerusalem through all this, then there's, there's a lot to think about in terms of what it means to come from the margins, from a position of power and not just uh, from a position of uh, the underdog. Um, but I think that there's a lot there to think about, and we're not going to think about it anymore. But just to put it out there, to get a little bit more into the text. Here we have Peter, um, the rock of the church, and he's suddenly acting like a satanic stumbling block. Man, Jesus calls him out, right? 
uh, not Satan, you know, the horned devil kind of Satan that we have in our popular imagination, but Satan as outsider or tempter or uh, any other way of understanding Satan. Remembering Satan was uh, the one who was tempting Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. And so this is kind of Peter coming back uh, into Satan's role at the beginning of the, of the Gospel. But in this moment, especially as Jesus is saying, yo, I gotta die and I'm going to get resurrected. And um, so there's this, this moment in which a disciple puts the pause on that, on that statement and that mission. Um, you know, what's happening here, right? Jesus uh, gives Peter all kinds of props and blessings in the, in the, the verses preceding this section. Um, so we have to ask, you know, what's, what happened? Uh, what happened that, you know, that prompts, you know, Peter to ask this question and that, prompts Jesus to respond in this particular way. So the way that I think of it most simply is that Peter happens. Um, human beingness happens. Um, and for a moment in the storyline, Peter is totally forgetful of what Jesus has been starting to reveal throughout the preceding scenes and, and um, story, uh, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. So to be fair to Peter, this is the turn in the story where Jesus has started to really lay it on thick, right? He's saying what he said. He's This is the mission. The mission is death. The mission is resurrection. Um, he's taken this journey with uh, Jesus and he hears Jesus say this and he's like, no, <laughs> this, is not what, this is not what I signed up for, uh, or at least it's not what I thought I signed up for. Uh, but what Peter has to realize and what, you know, as readers into Peter's role, we get to realize is that taking this journey with Jesus might just mean the very same thing for those who want to resist the empire alongside Jesus. It's not, uh, it's not all of the, 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 the resistance stuff that gets under people's skin and freaks people out. It's, I think it's really, really close to the question of the death part that Peter and really the rest of us get hung up on. So here, think of Peter not just as the rock of the church that you know Jesus proclaimed him to be just you know before this, and last week's podcast was, was really good uh, digging into that question. Don't just think of him as the rock of the church. You know, don't just go there with him. Think of him as the representative of the church itself both of which are in an ongoing process of coming to terms with the idea of who Jesus and God are. I think that there is a general failure to accept God and the power of God, to understand the power of God. And I think that failure resonates and comes from a desire to know everything that we think we ought to be able to know about God. I think that that desire to know is somehow connected to some stuff underneath. Uh, and this is a bold statement, but I think it's that most people believe that they are God. And I think we have these sort of latent feelings that we are, because we can control these things. But Jesus reminds us in this passage, just who we, or Peter, are acting like. Satan, the tempter, the distractor. And Jesus reminds us, in this passage, how we need to shape up and really start thinking critically about what it means to truly follow Jesus's way. When I think about this in terms of white supremacy, 
in white people and the resistance against white supremacy that people are mounting and that this podcast is attempting to unpack through our texts, I think this passage speaks really clearly to the problem of resistance against white supremacy. And I think it does that, especially as it pertains to how white supremacy plays out theologically. The logic of white supremacy distorts our consciousness of what it means to be created. And it distorts it to make us think that we are creators. And that leads us to thinking of a logic of through, through and with a logic of dominance as white people in particular, we project that logic of dominance onto the land, onto people of color, onto other cultures. And I think maybe even more fundamentally onto conceptions of what life and death are. Instead of being, um, well, we are not, I should say, when we do this, we are not the farmer in the Wendell Berry poem that I read at the beginning. We're not that farmer whose hands grow sprouts when they reach into the soil. Rather, we believe we are the originator of growth itself. And with that, the end of growth. As white people, ending our relationship to white supremacy is a journey toward understanding our actual humanity. And that actual humanity is a gift given to us by God, as is that understanding of our actual humanity. But I think that whole process comes with grappling with our own deaths. And I think we can think about this death as actual death, which is really just a part of being alive, as tragic and as terrifying as that most often can be. But I also think this death is the death that the broader white community is experiencing, maybe unconsciously. It's the kind of broader, more collective white community death that Robert Jones has documented in The End of White Christian America, the horrors of which we are seeing play out in all kinds of things, ranging from Trumpism and the administration's policies to white supremacists pouring out into the streets. And I would even go so far as to, um, you know, interrogate uh, the, the, that anxiety and that, that, uh, that death plays out a little bit in the way that the liberal establishment's um, deep unwillingness to invest in leadership of color on a much more robust pace and scale plays out. I think that's all wrapped up in the same death. On whatever level, coming to terms with and even helping to accelerate the death of white supremacy and whiteness is a matter of risk-taking that draws upon the same courage and steadfastness that Jesus calls upon his disciples to have when he says, If any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. So, how do we, <clears throat> as white people, move towards Jesus' call in the here and now? Among the many ideas that Jesus shares in this passage, one that stands out to me is the use of economic images. That's a quoted phrase from uh, the biblical scholar Warren Carter's uh, commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus asks, For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? 
Carter draws our attention to the words profit, gain, and forfeit. He then goes on to say, to invest oneself in maintaining or increasing power, wealth, and status, even to the point of owning the world, is loss, because it is not the means of participating in God's purposes. That's Carter's language. So another way of thinking about that is that God's purpose is to establish an unknown way of being in relationship to one another and on this earth. We may not know what that looks like. And the point is not that we know. We may not understand that way of being that God is calling us into and that Jesus is drawing us toward. But we are called to grow willing to let go of what we have inherited from empire so that we can receive a life promised but not yet lived. And that's a tension that we get to grapple with as, uh, you know, I say this from a perspective of Christian folk, Christian white person. Uh, That's a real tension that we have to live with and work through together. In this passage, Jesus is pointing at some things as well. He's modeling for us how to not hide from the reality of death. And he does that by moving through with a relentless commitment, moving through the world with a relentless commitment to helping people come alive, even while accepting an inevitable suffering and death. This is the paradox that Jesus challenges us to accept, at least in the Gospel of Matthew. So a big question left for us to grapple with is, are we ready to say yes to being alive? some questions, a range of questions, and more than I'll list here that come with that. Like, what's the economy that we need to be alive, to be fully alive? 
What's the political system that we need to be alive? And again, to be fully alive. What are the struggles worth engaging in that are personal, interpersonal, local, regional, institutional? What are all these struggles that are worth moving robustly and relentlessly toward with a commitment to being alive? And what are we doing and willing to do to stay alive? I think these are the big questions that this one raises. What next? First off, I'm going to ask you to take just a few deep breaths with me. Let your breath be a prayer that helps you remember that you are alive. Breathe a couple more times. Keep breathing. And then bring to your consciousness the fact that I am breathing too. And that others tuning into this podcast, they're doing the same in their own places. And that our different breaths are animating our individual bodies, but that our different breaths are drawing from the same source to animate our collective breath. You are alive. I am alive. We are alive. Second, I would um, encourage you to think uh, about a different form of action than maybe uh, a direct action would look like. Um, I'd say consider learning and digging into more about work and alternative economics. Uh, Warren Carter's assessment of this gospel text uh, got me thinking a lot about, you know, what does it really mean to live into this in a structural level? You know, what does it really mean to like start building that new world? And I think that there are a lot of alternative economics and alternative financial systems folks who are doing work that's rooted in anti-white supremacist, pro-black, pro-immigrant, pro-poor frameworks, and that challenge empire while building a new world. So one group that I'd like to lift up on this podcast is the Southern Reparations Loan Fund. Uh, the Southern Reparations Loan Fund makes business loans to cooperatively owned businesses anchored in the most marginalized Southern communities. The fund, quote, especially focuses its lending towards startups and expansions of democratically governed em- enterprises that meet the needs and elevate the quality of life of African Americans, immigrants, and poor whites. The fund's goal is to nurture the development of businesses that maximize community benefit rather than the narrow concept of maximizing profit. So, really cool stuff. The work like the Southern Reparations Loan Fund is slowly and steadily moving good work across this region. They're relatively new, but they've been doing some cool stuff over the last couple of years, doing a lot of deep listening. And the folks there probably know a heck of a lot more about folks who are doing similarly similarly good work around the country if you're not from this region. Um, so check them out at um, southernreparations.org. Thanks so much for listening today, everyone. I'll be back in a couple of months. Well, actually, less than that. I'll be back in the end of October. But be sure to check out the next Word is Resistance podcast, which will be offered next week by Blythe Barnow. Uh, or Barno. I'm not sure. I've not met Blythe. So it might be Barno, Barno. Um, and that'll be for the Sunday of September 10th. You can find out more about Surge and Surge Faith at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. 
So you just search SoundCloud for The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. And lastly, uh, the music you are hearing is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, a song called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, and No Enemies is a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to, uh, to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply, deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Many blessings to all of you. Take care and remember that the word is resistance. Yeah.